This evening we are going to be looking at the, the seal of God. And um, this is a topic which I hope that you will find uh, encouraging and enlightening. Um, we agreed last night, didn't we, that if God was going to give such strong warnings against the mark of the beast, then certainly he must be willing and we must be able to find out an understanding of what that is, right? God wouldn't warn us against something with such fearful warnings if it wasn't something that we could understand. So last night we took a look at what the first beast of Revelation 13 is, and I hope that was clear. I know for some people who haven't been here through the 22 nights that we've been through already and giving a, ground, a groundwork, a foundation in the book of Daniel and even some in Revelation, um, it might be a little bit confusing or it might seem like drinking out of a fire hose. But we want to make it as simple as possible. We want to make it as clear as possible. And throughout the, throughout the seminar last fall, we, we, we saw that there was a theme that emerged, a theme that emerged in end-time Bible prophecy. It begins with Daniel chapter 1. It's just a story, but it actually introduces the theme. And that is, who are you going to obey? Remember that? Are you going to obey man and live? Or are you going to obey God and die? In Daniel chapter 1, they have, to make a diet, they have to make a decision about something as simple as the diet they're going to eat. I mean, who could be so pecuniary? Who could be so particular as to care what they ate? Well, Daniel did. Daniel said, he, he says, he purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the food which the king ate and the wine which he drank. And so he wanted to honor God, even in the small things. I don't think that it was because God wanted to, or Daniel wanted to earn God's favor. I think it was because Daniel loved God. And he wanted to do those things that pleased him. And, and so we have this story. In Daniel chapter 3, the issue comes back, doesn't it? Who are you going to obey? The, the, the great golden image set up on the plain of Dura. And Daniel's not there, but his three friends are. And they said, you know what, king? Even if you want to kill us, our God's able to save us even from you. But if he doesn't, we're still not going to worship the image. Because we're not going to bow down and serve the gods of Babylon. We serve the one true God. And you remember, this is really the, the story that Revelation 13 borrows from when we once again find Babylon setting up another image in the last days, commanding the world to worship it, and uh, that on pain of death. So it's a very, very important story in the context of what we're talking about. In Daniel chapter 5, once again, well, we have the fall of Babylon. Daniel chapter 6, we have the, uh, the story of the lion's den. And once again, Daniel has to make a decision. Does he obey the king's decree that no one can pray to any other god except the emperor of the Medes and Persians? Or does he continue praying with his window open towards Jerusalem as he always has, witnessing of his faith and praying to his God? And he decides, I'd rather be thrown into the den of lions than stop obeying my faith. Who are you going to obey? You're going to obey God and 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 die, you're going to obey man and live. And so Revelation comes back with that, Revelation chapter 13. There's a lot of foundation that we've had here, and, and what we've seen is that we are saved by grace through faith, amen? We're saved by nothing that we do of ourselves. However, when we are saved, as Ephesians 2, 2 chapter 10 says it, we are, we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, right? So he recreates us, and we're going to talk about that tonight. This is part of the new covenant promise, that he does something for us that we cannot do for ourselves. We can't, by our own good righteousness, pull ourselves up into heaven by our own bootstraps. We can't make ourselves good or even, even better, really. All we have are like sheep have gone astray, right? We all are of our own righteousness is theirs as filthy rags, and yet God invites us God invites us to um, have this opportunity to, um, 
to experience salvation through Him, salvation by His grace. And um, that's what we're going to be talking about tonight. So, actually, is my slides just going on their own here? Um, We're going to be looking at the seal of God. We're going to be looking at how it's the antithesis of the mark in Revelation, right? And um, we're going to be looking at at how we can understand it um, as we understand the book of Revelation better. One is associated with worshiping the Creator, while the other is associated with worshiping the beast. Let's just have a word of prayer as we begin here tonight. Father in heaven, I want to thank you for your goodness. I want to thank you that we can come to you tonight and that we can um, worship you as the Spirit of, as the God of truth, uh, through the Spirit of truth, as you've promised. And today we just want to pray that as we study, as we open your word, that you would open our minds, that we might understand better what you have for us to understand tonight. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're looking at the mark of God. We're looking at the seal of God versus the mark of the beast. Now, as we think about this, I want us to just remember that God has given us a, a warning. And um, in, Rev- in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we read about this warning also. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day, the second coming, will not come unless the falling away uh, comes first. And the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition... Who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, uh, showing himself that he is God. Do not do not remember that when I was with you still I told you these things. And uh, he goes on and he says, and now you know what is restraining that he may be revealed in his own time. Last night we went in some detail over this passage and we saw how it parallels the predictions of Daniel chapter 7, the little horn, and the great apostasy, the falling away that would take place in the Christian church that would last for the Middle Ages. And then he goes on, he says, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Now, I believe that is talking about pagan Rome, who stood in the way of the great lawless one, the mystery of iniquity, the man of sin coming to power. Now, it wasn't that the mystery of iniquity wasn't already present. It wasn't already working. Paul says that, right? It's already, even in my day, it's already getting started. But it couldn't have civil power until pagan Rome was taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. So how is this power described here? This is the New King James Version. How is it described in 2 Thessalonians 2? It's described as the man of sin. It's described as the what? The lawless one. And here we find that God's, um, God's warning is against those who will put aside what he says and teach instead what man says. The lawless one who's going to be destroyed with the brightness of his coming. Now Jesus said that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. Remember, we're talking about the seal of God tonight. And in our discussion questions, I had three choices there. Why do we need the seal of God? Is it because God needs it? Is it because we need it? Is it because others need it? Um, That was a discussion question. I didn't put it out to say one is right and the other is wrong. I wanted to discuss it, right? That's the point. I heard some of the discussions. Well, we have three choices. No, you don't. You can discuss it. (laughs) That was the main point. I wanted to hear it discussed. I don't, real, I don't even know if I know the answer exactly if I would stick with just one of them. But one thing I do know 
is that the seal of God can't be claiming to be a Christian. You got that? Because Jesus here in Matthew chapter 7, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. So in other words, just because we claim that we're Christians doesn't mean that we really are Christians. Now, I don't want us to go out from here, please. The point of the word of God is not for us to go out from here judging other people. Well, are you really a Christian? Maybe if you don't do this and this and this and this that I think that Christians should do, then you're not really Christian. Listen, the point of the word of God is for us to apply it to our own hearts. We get into big trouble when we try judging other people, all right? And I've already made it very clear, I think, many times in our times together that I believe God has people in all kinds of faiths. I really believe that. And I don't want to judge whether someone's a real Christian or not a real Christian, except me. I want, I want to know what God says about me. I want to know what this word says to my heart. And so Jesus says, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, um, well, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who, what does it say? He who does the will, what he wants to do, is that what it says? He who does whatever he wants to do? No, he who does the will of my Father in heaven. In other words, Jesus says, it's not good enough to call myself a Christian. I need to obey what God wants me to do. Does that make sense? He who does the will of my Father. Now, I don't think, let's make it very clear here, I do not believe for one moment that Jesus is suggesting that we earn our salvation by doing the will of the Father. I don't think that's it at all. I don't think he's talking about, but I, I don't think he's talking about how we are saved. I think he is giving us a way that we can know whether we're walking in the way that he wants us to walk. Not just by what we say, but why would we obey. And uh, so he says, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Check this out. Cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name. I mean, if, if these people aren't Christians, I don't know who are. They call Jesus Lord. They do great things in Jesus' name. Is he talking about Christians, friends? He must be talking about Christians. This is scary for me. Honestly, this is scary for me. Because it makes me stop and say, okay, Chester, just because you're a Christian doesn't mean, even just because you do things in Jesus' name, and even if you call Jesus Lord, it doesn't mean you're actually doing the will of the Father in heaven. Because many people do great things cast out demons, perform miracles, wonders in Jesus' name. And I, he says, will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from you, me, you who practice what? Lawlessness. In other words, my standard, a human standard of what Christianity is, cannot take the place of what God says a Christian should do. We can identify ourselves as God's people when we are walking in the Father's will, when we are obeying Him. And Jesus will say to Christians, I say this is fearful because, you know, I, let me just be really frank and honest with you for a moment here tonight. If I'm going to be lost, I don't want to be lost. I want to be a part of God's eternal kingdom, and I hope you do too, amen? Uh, but if I'm going to be lost, I would rather be lost knowing full well I was lost than be lost thinking I was saved. When I say that's fearful, that's what I mean. I, I would rather be headed down to perdition knowing it than get to the judgment day and stand before God and say, but, 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 but what? Look what we've done. Look what I've done. 
Look at my pedigree. Look at my resume. And Jesus says, I never knew you. Chester, you're doing that all for your own glory. Chester, you were doing lots of good things, but it wasn't the things that I asked, right? And so this is a very, very sobering passage for me. Obviously, just claiming to be Christian isn't enough. And how do we know? Turn with me in the, this passage, Matthew chapter 7. Get your Bibles out. We're going to be using our Bibles this evening. Matthew chapter 7, I want us to look at what Jesus says next. He gives a parable. It's the parable of the house and the storm and the house that's built on the rock versus the house that's built on the sand. Matthew chapter 7, and we're beginning with verse 24. And when you're there, can you say amen? amen. Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. I still hear some pages, so we're going to give a little more time. I want us all to be together in this because it's not what I say that's important tonight. Amen? It's what God's Word says. And that's what we want to focus on. Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. Who Therefore, he's continuing from what he just said. Verse 23, therefore... That means based upon what I just said, right? Whoever hears these sayings of mine, and what does it say? Does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew and built on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. You want to make sure that you stand in the last days? You have your house built on the solid rock. And how do you do that? Now, some people have tried to say, well, you know, there's some sort of a, a dichotomy, a, a contradiction between the Father's will and Jesus' will. But you notice in verse 22 and 23, he talks about those who do the will of my Father in heaven, right? And now he says, those who do the sayings of mine. I believe that Jesus and the Father are one. That's what I believe. And here we find that Jesus says, if you want to stand for the storms ahead, build your house, build your character, not upon human ideas, not upon human practices or tendencies or what's popular in the world, but build your character, your house, upon the solid rock of the Word of God. Jesus, of course, is the living Word. He is the rock. And how do we do that? We not just listen to the Word, but we obey it. We do those things. Verse 25 I'm sorry, verse 26. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them. So what's the contrast? Some do and some don't. Both hear, right? Both know the truth, but some don't obey. Those who don't do them, it says, I will liken him to a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house and it fell. And great was its fall. Now, so how does God know when we are his? How do we know when we are His. Well, it's when we are willing, when He's changed our hearts so that we are willing to obey Him. When we're willing to just obey Him, do His will, keep His word, um, keep His law. And you know, you find here this word, um, I never knew you, depart from me, you practice lawlessness. I wonder how many, how many of God's commands do you think we would need to be breaking in order to be, in order to be considered lawless? Have you ever thought of that? You think, we, you think we can get, well, let's just use the Ten Commandments as an example. Um, I'm sure there's more in God's Word that we could consider as commands that we should be obeying, but use, use the Ten Commandments. Um, there's, not, there's ten of them, so, you know, if I'm 90% there, don't you think that's good enough? 80%? I mean, most people don't even do that, so if you look around, compare yourself with others, <clears throat> you're doing pretty good, Right? But James chapter 2 actually addresses this question. So let's turn there in our Bibles. James chapter 2. James is a little epistle towards the end of the New Testament. Um, uh, it's actually 
sort of the first of the general epistles after Hebrews. And uh, James chapter 2, uh, uh, James actually addresses this question, and we're going to begin reading in verse 10. James chapter 2 and verse 10. And um, this is actually an answer to the question that we just had. Um, verse 10 says, For whoever shall keep the whole law... Sounds pretty good so far, right? Sounds great. That would not be a lawless one. But whoever shall keep the whole law... Oh, but. Those buts are awfully uh, problematic sometimes, aren't they? Um, For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of what? Of all. In other words... The Ten Commandments are part of one law, right? Because the law is simply a transcript of God's character. It tells us who He is, what He's about. Remember, it's the, con- the concept of love. Love to God supremely and love to your neighbors yourself. That's the Ten Commandment law, right? And if you break the commandment, even though it's one of the ten, you've broken the whole law. Does this make sense? And you become, I become, a lawless one. That's what it says. Verse, it continues on. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of, what does it say? The law of liberty. I love that. God's commandments are not meant to be burdensome or onerous or problematic or troublesome. God's commandments are meant to give us true freedom. And we're going to talk why in just a minute. We're going to talk why because whether you like it or not, I'm getting ahead of myself now, but I'm going to say it anyway. Whether you like it or not, you serve somebody besides yourself. Yeah. I, I, I had a friend one time growing up. He said, well, I don't, I don't serve God. I don't serve Satan. I, I just live for myself. Well, that's a nice thought. But if you commit sin, you're the servant of sin, the Bible says. And Jesus came to set us free. And when we're, at, when we're, when we're set free, we become servants of his. <laughs> it's a wonderful thing. The good thing about being a servant of Jesus is he gives us freedom. He respects our freedom. We could leave his service at any time. Whereas the devil tries to wind us around in habits and, and addictions and all kinds of things to keep us so that even if we want to leave his service, it's really hard. Sin destroys our willpower. God setting us free empowers our willpower that we can have victory in him. So um, Jesus... Um, wants to set us free from sin, and he says, so speak and so do, James says, as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. So, let's be very clear here. We're not saved by keeping the commandments of God or of Jesus, but if we are saved, we will keep the commandments. Talk is cheap, right? We can say we're Christians, but what do we do? What is our life? Now, this is, this is, uh, this is the reality that tr- profession is easy, but True obedience is a miracle. Lest you leave here somehow thinking that, I, that you know, that Chester was saying tonight that I've got to try harder and, and then, uh, then, I'll, then I'll, uh, I'll be God's and I won't be the lawless one and I'll be building my character on a foundation. I, I think you have missed my whole point. You can't keep the law. You need a miracle, a power that's outside and beyond yourself. And I've said this many times, if you've come to church on Saturday mornings, you've heard me say it more than once. If your religion offers you no more than you can do for yourself, your religion is worthless. We need a religion. We need a God, a relationship with God that gives us power we don't have from ourselves. Power from above. 
We need that kind of a God. We need that kind of a relationship. We need a miracle of new birth in our lives and true obedience to keep the commandments is not a checklist. You get up on on Sunday morning and you say, okay, I've got seven days a week ahead of me and this is what I'm going to do each day and I'm going to plan it out and I'm going to make sure I don't break any of the commandments. I'm just going to keep the law. No, there's a miracle that must take place of a reconverted heart, a heart that's taken out, a heart of stone and a heart of flesh put in, a, a new creature altogether. I mean, that's the language the Bible uses. We need that kind of a miracle. And by the way, we need it on a daily basis. I do at least. I don't know about you. It's not good enough that I had that miracle last week. I need it today. I do. Desperately. If I do not have a miracle today to God working in my heart to do something that I can't do in my own heart, then I'm lost. I, just, I can't save myself. I can't do what's right just because I, I grit my teeth and I, and I grin and bear it. No, not at all. In fact, Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 33 says, This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it in their hearts. What does he say he'll put in our minds and write in our hearts? His law. Now, why would he do that? Does he want us to become a bunch of legalists? Always thinking about what was, I mean, after all, the Jews did that. They, they, they tied them in front of their face. They wrote them on the little leather phylacteries, and they, they kept them right in front of their heads. And, and, but it didn't do it. No, this is a miracle, he says. I'll write them in their minds and in their hearts. The point is that God wants to so change our hearts. He wants to do a miracle of transformation and conversion in our hearts so that he actually, we actually want the things that he wants. So that our desires become his desires. This is, this is something that he wants to do in us to, to transform us so that we want to obey his law. I mean, David said it. He says, I delight to do thy law, oh my God. Thy will, oh my God. Yea, your law is within my heart. That's the experience that he had. And that's the experience that God wants us to have as well. Now, he says, and notice, notice, I want to read this verse again. It's just a powerful, beautiful passage. There's several of them here in Jeremiah. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. And he says, I will be their God and they shall be my people. It sounds to me like... This, this covenant relationship that he wants to have, this, this, uh, this writing of the law in our hearts and minds is a part of that special connection relationship which he says identifies us as his and him as ours. You understand what's going on here? Now some people are going to say, well, that's an old covenant. That's Jeremiah. That's the Old Testament. Well, I've got news for you. The way God saved people in the Old Testament is the same as He saves people in the New Testament. I realize there's changes. I realize we don't offer sacrifices. I realize the ceremonial law has been done away with. We don't take lambs to the sanctuary. We don't even have to go to the earthly sanctuary anymore. But I want you to know that Paul, if he argued anything in Romans chapter 4, he argued that Abraham was justified by faith. He says he wasn't justified because he was circumcised. He was justified because he had faith that God was able to make him righteous. And, uh, and so in the Old Testament, he says, I want to write my laws and put them in your hearts and minds, and I'm going to be your God, and you're going to be my people. Notice with me that this same passage is verbatim quoted by Paul in the book of Hebrews. This is new covenant now language. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 10. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. 
Oh, my friends, the relationship that God wants to have with us is not based upon what we can do, but what upon He can do in our hearts and minds. A miracle of conversion. A miracle of Him writing our law in our hearts. I, play, I pray that nobody ever goes away from one of our studies together and says, oh, that, you know, the law is just about works and legalism. No, it's about us wanting to do God's will. What's wrong with that? That's what Jesus came to this earth to do, His Father's will, right? Was He a legalist? Absolutely not. He loved His Father. And when we are saved, Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments, right? John 14 and verse 15. And so God wants us, God wants us to have this experience of a miracle of transformation, not, not to keep His law so that we'll be saved, but because we're saved, we're going to want to do what He wants us to do. Remember, not everyone who says unto me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but he that does the will of my Father, which is in heaven. How are we going to do that? It's only through the blood of Jesus, through a miracle made possible by his cross, that he writes his law in our hearts and saves us by his grace. Is this clear? Is it clear tonight? Now he goes on in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 16. Again, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds I will write them. We're talking about the miracle of conversion. And this, friends, is good news. Turn with me to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, real quickly here. And we're going to read verses 14 through 18. You have to see the beauty of what God is wanting to do for us through writing His law in our hearts. And this is a, um, this is a relational thing that He's talking about. I will be their God. They will be my people. I want this relationship with them. Romans chapter 6, beginning with verse 14, it says, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Is that good news? Absolutely. And when we talked uh, back in the fall, we had a, a whole evening where we explored these passages, and we saw that this doesn't mean, as Paul goes on and says, um, this doesn't mean that we no longer keep the law. It means we're no longer under the condemnation of the law, right? We no longer have the law condemning us. Instead, the law is a blessing to us, as, is a, as a guardrail on the highway would be. What then? Shall we sin because we're no, uh, not under law but under grace? Certainly not. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, some translations say servants, but slaves is a pretty accurate rendering, doulos, um, do not you know that to whom you present yourself slaves to obey, you are that one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? This is what Paul argues. He says, look, you're slaves either way, right? You can choose to either continue to be a slave of sin and the wages of sin is death, or you can choose to be a slave of Jesus, you might say, and and, and, and when he writes his law in your hearts, the nice thing is, you're actually doing what you want to do anyway. The only way to actually be content in this world is to have God change your heart. Remember, there's a promise in the Old Testament that says, I will give you the desires of your heart. You know, delight yourself in the most of the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. You've read that promise in Psalm, Psalms. Um, so, how is that possible? I want a million dollars. Well, it's possible because as I surrender my life to him and he writes his law in my heart, he actually changes my desires to be in line with what he wants. And pretty soon I'm getting what I want because what I want is, he want, is what he wants. It's the only way to ever be content in this life.
Godliness with contentment is great gain, Paul says. And here he says, um, if, you, if you are servants to whom you yield yourselves to obey. So friends, it's very simple. How does God know if we are his servants? It's if we're willing to obey him, right? I mean, it's pretty clear, isn't it? Just in how the Bible spells it out here. How do we know that we're serving God? Well, it's whether we have a heart to obey him. Now, I want you to know right now, the closer we get to Jesus, the more we're going to see in our, in our own self to, to realize I'm not where I want to be. And often we need to just be kneeling down and asking God, God, please just change my heart. I, I, I didn't realize this stuff was in here. And he's the only one that can change our hearts, isn't he? But I, what, what we need is a willing heart, a heart that's open to have that transformation. Freedom from the service of Satan means service to God. Now, if we go back to the Garden of Eden, I want us to just remember here, let's, let's go back, because we're talking about the seal of God. We're talking about how God identifies His people in the last days and how they are described. And so let's go back to Genesis. We're going to start in the very first story of how sin entered the earth, Genesis chapter 3. And we're going to think about this story, and we're going to see how the tree of the knowledge of good and evil would demonstrate whose side Adam and Eve were on. That's a fair question to ask, don't you think? You see, God places the tree of knowledge in the Garden of Eden. Now, this is a, this is a, a, um, this is a, a short summary of our night where we talked about a game of thrones i don't know if you remember of that this great controversy between between christ and satan that began all the way back in heaven revelation 12 tells us there was war in heaven right there's this there's this there's a conflict between christ and satan michael and the dragon and um, there's war in heaven now that war came down to earth didn't it and um, this is how i understand it and we won't go into all the details you can go back and listen to that night if you like but um, what I believe happened is the devil, the devil, Satan, is saying, God, you're not being fair. You're not allowing us to do what we feel is best. You have a law that's restrictive. You tell us to do things that, that it's probably, you know, just because you are selfish and you, don't, you, you want to be worshipped and you want to be, um, uh, you know, have our praise and everything. But it, you can't be just and fair. And this war started broke, breaking out. Lucifer is cast out of heaven. He takes a third of the angels with him. And... And, and they come down here to earth. Now, why is earth in the middle of this? Well, the angels have had a, a, a choice, right? They've had a choice. Do I stay with Jesus, God, or do I follow Lucifer? And it's remarkable that in heaven, a third of perfect beings got duped by the deceiver. That's pretty remarkable, isn't it? A third of the angels of heaven are cast out. And Lucifer is saying, hey, this is pretty good, you know? And um, if I can just... It's only fair that everyone has a choice. How can you say you're free if you don't give them a choice? Adam and Eve are down here in this perfect world. How do you know they would follow you if you don't even give them the choice of not following me, uh, not following you? And so Lucifer says, I demand that this be done fairly. And God said, okay, I'll give them a choice. They'll have an opportunity to obey me or obey you. Remember, who you obey, that's whose servants you are. Is that right? And all Adam and Eve had to do was obey. Now, let me ask you a question. Was it legalistic for them to obey? No. I mean, after all, they were already saved. I mean, they weren't lost, so there wasn't, there wasn't, there wasn't anything to earn or anything like that, right? 
Why would they obey anyway? Maybe because they trusted him. Maybe because they loved him, right? That's, that's the reasons, I, I can imagine, why Adam and Eve would obey. And we notice here that God says in, um, in, in, in Genesis chapter 2, and he says in verse 16, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you may not eat, for in the day you eat of it you shall surely die. Dying you will die, is what the phrase says. And so, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, let me ask you a question. Was this a test? Yes. Would it demonstrate whose servants they were? Yes. yes. Was there a good reason why they shouldn't eat of that tree? Yes. What, what reason? Was it poisonous? Why would they want to know evil? Oh, well, well, because they would know evil, because God told them not to. But let, let me just think, is there any logical reason why Adam and Eve walking through the garden would say, Oh boy, I'm glad we can't eat from that tree. I mean, that tree just looks scary. Is that the way it was? Oh, do you think if, if, if they ate of the tree, it was like cyanide, pure cyanide, boom. Was that what it was? I mean, the serpent's sitting there munching away when Eve comes by, right? So obviously this isn't poisonous. Um, Eve eats it, Adam eats it. They still live like 930 years or something, right? So it couldn't have been terribly toxic. There wasn't anything wrong with the tree. I suppose it was just one of the trees that God had created. The only reason it was a test, the only reason they shouldn't eat of the fruit is because... I need one of Michael's drum rolls. No, I'm just kidding. The only reason was because God said so. That's why it would be a test. You see, it wouldn't be a test if, obviously, we wouldn't even want to eat from that tree. Ooh, ooh, can you believe that tree in the middle of the garden? Oh, my goodness. Would that be a test? No. If they saw the birds dropping dead that landed in his bushes, in his branches, would it be a test? No. The only reason it was a test because it was a perfectly good tree. And the only reason they would not eat it was because God said so. I argue that if there's another reason that it would be a flawed test, the only reason is because God said so. And when we look at the, the commandments of God, in fact, turn with me there, Exodus chapter 20. When we look at the commandments of God, we notice that God has once again given us a request that doesn't make any sense. Exodus chapter 20, let's look at the Ten Commandments that we have here. Remember that these commandments were given on Mount Sinai, but we, when we studied this, the, the law of God back in our fall seminar, we actually learned that the commandments existed before then, right? Joseph knew that adultery was wrong, didn't he? 
Um, the Sabbath existed in Exodus chapter 16 with the whole manna that was provided and twice as much on Friday and so forth. The law was in existence before this, but here God gives it codified in Ten Commandments written with His own finger. And um, this is how he, he, he speaks it first. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. By the way, I love this, the symbology. They've been set free from slavery, haven't they? And now they have been given His law. It's a wonderful symbology as we are set free as well. We then have his law written in our hearts. And he says, you shall have no other gods before me. Is there a logical reason why if you're a Christian, you wouldn't have other gods that are more important than him? Is that pretty logical? Yeah, it is pretty logical. You shall not make for yourself any carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above. Now, we talked about the beast last night. We studied in detail. I want you to know that the beast has attacked the law of God on several points. We'll be talking more about that tomorrow night when we talk about the mark of the beast. But one of the things, is, uh, the beast says, well, you know what, the, this part about raven images, it's not really that important, and they actually sort of deleted that out of the law, if you look at the Douay version, and they split another commandment into two so that the law could be changed. You remember Daniel chapter 7, it said that the little horn would think to change times and laws? Yeah, well, it actually tried to do that. But we think about it, is there a good reason that we shouldn't be worshiping idols and images? Does that make sense? Like the other... Uh, well, especially in those days, the nations around. Um, no, we're supposed to be worshiping the creator, not the created. The creator, not the creation. That's the difference. We, we worship the God of gods who, who cannot be restricted into an icon or an idol. Um, the third commandment says, verse 7, "...you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain." Does that make sense? I mean, it's just general respect, isn't it? For, you know, if you talked bad about your employer or took his name in vain, it wouldn't, be, it wouldn't go very well for you, would it? So why would we do that about God? It's just, this is common sense, right? The fourth commandment says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Does that make sense? Well, I can tell you there's a lot of sense in that because God didn't make us to run 24-7. He made us to sleep at night and he made us to rest one day out of seven. He says, uh, rest, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work but the seventh day is the Sabbath. So that part makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? That we need a day of rest. The fifth commandment says, honor your father and your mother that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. Does that make sense? Yes, these are just general principles that are, that are good uh, soci um, interpersonal relationship principles. Uh, uh, the next commandment, the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. That makes sense. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. All of these things make sense, don't they? But I want to go back because I'm going to make an argument here that I think is, is pretty powerful. We're going to look, we're going to look at, uh, at, 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 uh, at some conclusions here in a few minutes. But what I want you to see here is that in the middle of the Ten Commandments, God made a request that makes no sense. No, there's no reason for it. The fourth commandment says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Now, we agree that having a day off is, is sensible. That makes sense. But he says, six days you shall labor and do your work, all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do your work, do no work, you nor your son nor your daughter, your male servant nor your female servant nor your cattle nor your stranger who is within your gates, 
For in six days the Lord made heavens and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Now we talked earlier about how we can keep all the commandments but offend in one point and that we're guilty of breaking the law, right? Well, why does this matter? What matters is if God said it, I should be willing to obey it, right? And here he says, six days you shall labor, that's all good. The seventh day is the Sabbath. Now this part makes no sense to me, honestly. I can find no rational reason why he would care what day of the week I rest on. I can look in science, and I can look in the planetary signs. You know, we know why we have a year, because it takes that long for our little ball of dirt to, to orbit around the, the sun. We know why we have a month, right, because of the, the lunar cycles. We know why we have a week. Yeah, we know why we have day and night, too. Um, I know God made the sun rise purple on the seventh day. Have you noticed that? And purple's a more restful color, so of course. Is that what it said? Have, have you noticed that? How about, do the birds sing louder on Sabbath, on the seventh day of the week? Huh? I can find no logical reason, no logical reason, why God said, the seventh day. I've scratched my head about it. I don't know. I mean, I, I know people say, well, doctors have found that, you know, the body works on seven-day cycles and all, but yeah, maybe it's because we're already on a seven-day cycle. I don't know. But still, even if we find seven-day cycles, there's nothing that is identified scientifically the seventh day as being different physically than any other day. There's only one reason, only one reason why I keep the seventh-day Sabbath. It's because God said to. If there was a logical reason, it wouldn't be a test of my obedience. It wouldn't be a sign of my loyalty and allegiance. It would simply be me using my brain to do what makes sense. And God says, keep the seventh day the day that I blessed, I came to the end of creation week, I blessed it, I sanctified it, I set it aside, worship on that day. There's only one reason, and that's because God said so. You know, I find something else interesting in this passage. We're talking about the seal of God, and a seal, here's a presidential seal, the seal of the President of the United States. You notice when he travels, um, he flies on Air Force One. It, it landed in Chattanooga here a year or two ago, and um, I didn't see it, but... Um, uh, a fellow that I fly with sometimes was at the airport since all the airplanes were grounded and all the, none of the pilots could be in the air anyway. He went to the airport with his camera and he stood over the approach in. He knew which way the winds were blowing. He knew which way the Air Force One was going to be coming. And so he stood down there and he photographed that plane coming in. And it is an amazing bird. I mean, it looks like, it looks like they've had 300 people polishing the underside of the wings the way you can see it like a mirror. It's amazing. And um, on that plane, here's this big seal, the President of the United States. What does that seal contain? You notice the, the, the elements of the seal that's found right there. It, 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 first, the title of the office, right? What's the title? He's the President. And then his territory. What's he President of, right? He's President of the United States. That's what a seal contains. That's just, that's just what a seal contains. Now look here in, in Exodus chapter 20. 
He says, six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of who? The Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you nor your daughter. And then verse 11, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that in them is. So first of all, he has his name. He's the Lord, the Yahweh. He's also the creator. There's a title there, isn't he? I'm the one who created everything. And what did I create? And he gives, he gives his territory. The heaven, the earth, the sea, and all that in them is. You think the President of the United States has power. Who? The creator. The creator of everything. That's right here in the heart of God's Ten Commandment law. The creator of heaven and earth and everything that is in them. A seal was used, remember, to, to demonstrate the authority of the person or the authenticity of the, the letter of the document. And when God wants to put his seal on us, he's wanting to demonstrate that we are his, that we are his. He's the creator, he's the creator of everything, and we are his. A wonderful relationship that we have. And friends, I propose this only happens through the miracle of God writing His law in our hearts. And that includes the seal, that part of the law which we can't keep by ourselves because, listen, you can't keep a day holy if you're not holy. And you can't be holy unless the holy God has done a miracle in your life. We don't have any holiness of our own. And we won't keep it except we know and we recognize this as the sign of our allegiance to him. In the fourth commandment, we find the seal right there in the heart of God's law. Now, this shouldn't really come as a surprise to us. We remember when we look back at Revelation, we remember that there's, a, there's, a, there's an issue in the last days of worship, right? There's an issue of last days of worship, and we'll talk more about, more about that in just a moment. Could the Sabbath be involved with the seal of God? Could it be the sign that we are His and He is ours? Well, keeping the law was talked about in that way, wasn't it? I will put my law in their hearts, and they will be my people, and I will be their God. And in the heart of the law is this elements of a Sabbath, the elements of a test, because the only reason I keep the Seventh-day Sabbath is simply because God said so. Simply because God said so. Now let's look at Romans chapter 4. And we remember, we remember that in the Old Testament church, there is also a sign given of what God's people, of, of who God's people were. Remember this, in Romans chapter 4 and verse 11, there's also a sign or a seal. And we see it here in Romans chapter 4 and verse 11, talking about Abraham. He received, Abraham, received the sign of, what is it? Circumcision. A seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised. Now, I love this because, remember, I, I told you earlier, Paul argues in Romans that Abraham was saved by faith, righteousness which came by faith. Here he says he received the seal even while he was still uncircumcised because God had, had, had accepted him as his. It wasn't because he was circumcised that he earned righteousness. No, not at all. I hope that you can see this, and it's very relevant to what we're talking about here tonight when we talk about the Sabbath as, as a, and obedience to the law as a seal of our relationship with God. Listen, circumcision was not a way by which Abraham was saved. Is that clear here? He already had the righteousness by faith, but he was given a sign and a seal 
that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. Let's go back to that, that verse. He received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness. You notice how sign and seal is used interchangeably? Circumcision in the Old Testament was how God's people were set apart and identified as his. If you wanted to be saved, you, well, if you wanted to join God's people, you became a Jew. Even if you were a Gentile, you had to be circumcised. That was the step that you went through. And um, this was a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had uh, received already. So a sign and a seal are used interchangeably. Now remember, Revelation. Revelation does not just, is not just written in a vacuum. Revelation borrows language used elsewhere in the Bible, right? So we've spent some time this evening already looking at what a sign or a seal is. And, and here at Revelation, there's only a couple verses where the seal of God is mentioned. It's only actually twice that the seal of God is mentioned in the book of Revelation, maybe three times. But Revelation chapter 7 is the most clear. <clears throat> and this, <clears throat> this how they, they don't tell us what the seal is, but we can understand those symbols by seeing how it's used elsewhere in the Bible, right? That's how we've interpreted the rest of Daniel and Revelation. So, what was involved with worship is connected to the law of God and is described as a sign for God's people. And the answer is the Seventh-day Sabbath. It's, it's, it's involved with worship. It's connected to the law of God and is described as a sign for God's people. Notice Ezekiel chapter 20 and verse 12. Moreover, also I gave them my Sabbaths to be a what? A sign between them and me that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. Well, that may have answered our question of earlier, right? And the Sabbath was a blessing to the Jews because they would remember the God that they served. Ezekiel chapter 20 and verse 12 says, I gave them my Sabbaths as a, a sign. And uh, you'll remember that that Romans uses these terms, sign and seal, interchangeably. The same chapter, Ezekiel 20 and verse 20, hallow my Sabbaths, and they will be a sign between me and you that you may know that I am the Lord your God. Again, relational language here, isn't it? I want us to remember this isn't something we do on our own. This is something that happens as a new covenant relationship with Jesus as he writes his law in our hearts and in our most inward parts. Um, Exodus chapter 31 and verse 13. Speak also to the children of Israel, saying, Surely my Sabbath you shall keep, for it is a, what does it say? A sign between me and you uh, throughout your generations, that you may know that I am the Lord your God, the, I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Now, if indeed God's last day people will be distinguished by obeying God, keeping all His commandments, don't you think Revelation would make that pretty clear? That's the question we have to ask. If, in fact, the sign and the indication of whether we're really God's, not just professing Him, is whether we obey His commands, and if the heart of, that, heart of His commands is, is, is keeping a day which doesn't make sense to us except that He said so, then don't you think Revelation should have made that pretty clear? Well, let's see if it does. Revelation Chapter 12 and verse 17, the dragon was enraged with the woman and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring. How are they described? Who what? To keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Surprise. In fact, the book of Revelation does describe God's last day people as commandment keepers. And it's not just in 1217. We go on, 1412, here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who what? Keep the commandments of God and the faith 
of Jesus. Revelation chapter 22 and verse 14, blessed are those who do his commandments that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. Friend of mine tonight, mankind lost access to that tree of life by disobeying God's word, by disobeying his command. And we will certainly, it wouldn't be fair. God would owe the devil an apology if he took us back into heaven while we were still choosing willfully to disobey what God has asked us to do. We ourselves need to have that new covenant experience. Revelation chapter 14, remember that those angels with the message take to the whole world. I, I live by this because I think this is the message for today. I really do. Revelation chapter 14, the three angels' message. And the first one, um, I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. And what does this everlasting gospel say? Fear God. We spent quite a bit of time with this um, in Revelation's ultimate message. I think it was night seven or eight of our series. Fear God. Give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come. And then it says, and what? Worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of waters. He quotes here directly from the fourth commandment. I mean, could God get, make it any more plain? Could He make it any more clear? That when He's talking about worship, He's talking about us doing it the way He's asked us to. He's talking about us keeping His commandments. And, you know, the, the beast in Revelation chapter 13, we'll be studying that tonight. I didn't want to study the beast and, and the, the mark of the beast until we studied the answer in Revelation chapter 14. But the beast says... You have to worship the beast or his image and, and receive his mark or else you're not going to be able to buy or sell. You're going to be killed. That's what the beast says, right? God says, no, don't worship the beast. Worship the creator. Worship the one who made heaven and earth, the sea and the fountains of waters. What a wonderful, wonderful God we serve. Amen? What a, what a privilege to be able to worship him. And what a privilege to be able to study His Word and to understand more of His will and of His ways. And um, tomorrow night we're going to be looking at the, the mark of the beast. And I hope that you'll, you'll um, bring your Bibles again, you'll bring your thinking caps. What we see is contrast in Revelation. We see those who are law, the lawless one and those who keep the commandments. We see the mark of the, uh, the seal of God and we see the mark of the beast. And we're going to try to understand what it is that um, identifies the, the mark of the beast as we study tomorrow night. Thank you for coming tonight. Let's bow our heads as we pray. Father in heaven, tonight we have just, we scratched the surface of a very big topic, tried to bring together some of the things we studied in the fall. And tonight I just want to pray that you'll be with each person here that, Lord, I pray for myself. I, I really don't think that just because I, I set aside Saturday means that I'm a commandment keeper. I need that miracle. I need my heart changed, your law written in my heart each day. I want to be able to say like David and like Jesus, I delight to do your will, oh my God. Yea, your law is written in my heart. Lord, that's not something I can do for myself. I confess my inability. I confess my need of a miracle. But Lord, I also want to be among those who, when you come again, are found not just hearing the sayings of Jesus, but doing them. I want, to, I want to be faithful to everything you've asked me to do. Even those things that don't necessarily make sense, but they're just because you said so. Oh Lord, I pray that every person here in this room tonight might have that same experience. That we might leave here tonight with no desire 
except that of obeying you because you're our Savior, because you've redeemed us, because you've saved us by your blood, because we are now your servants to do as you please. Oh, Lord, may that be our experience, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.